Welcome to the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. This is a voice of the narrated Puritan. The recordings of the narrated Puritan can be found at www.sermonaudio.com. Search for the broadcaster, the narrated Puritan. The following is a continuation of the story of the persecution of our Baptist forefathers in colonial Massachusetts in the 1600s. In the last episode, we talked about the whipping of Obadiah Holmes, John Clark, and Crandall for denying infant baptism. This whipping took place at the head of State Street in front of the meeting house and of the old State House, the site of the former is now occupied by the Brazier Building. Boston has erected a monument to the memory of those who fell in the Boston Massacre, and that would have been the four Quakers of 1770, including Mary Dyer, which occurred almost on the same spot. They fell in the assertion of the rights of free men and in resistance to British tyranny over municipal and civil liberty. But will Boston ever erect a monument to Obadiah Holmes, whose blood flowed freely on the same ground in assertion of the rights of conscience and in resistance to American tyranny, over religious liberty, the sufferers and the massacre acted on the impulse of the mob, but dimly realized their part in the struggle for liberty. The sufferer at the whipping post acted intelligently, deliberately, and with clear knowledge of the significance of what he had suffered. He was a truth-loving forerunner of the martyrs whose patient sufferings eventually saved New England from herself and from the dire consequences of her strange blindness concerning liberty. He was the first in a sadly long list of those who suffered in order that the New England intelligence and the New England conscience might assert themselves and forever establish in the new world a civil and religious liberty which should be Christian and complete. But moving on, we now tell you the story of Henry Dunster and Thomas Gould, Henry Dunster was a president of Harvard University. All the repressive measures devised by the general court and the severity of the persecutions only served to make Baptists more widely known and to create toward them an active sympathy. They were the persuasive and fruitful preparation for the establishment of a Baptist church in Boston. It was one among the oft-repeated illustrations of history that the blood of the martyrs is the seat of the church. It was impossible that men should not inquire what these peaceable and law-abiding citizens had done, and what doctrines they held which should subject them to these indignities and sufferings. The spirit of inquiry is always a dangerous antagonist of the spirit of tyranny, however sincere or devout the forms of that tyranny may appear. Men who had thought little or nothing about Baptists now began to inquire about them and their doctrines. Inquiry made new converts and sympathizers. The Baptist heresy, as they called it, broke out in wholly unexpected and alarming quarters. I am reading from the History of the First Baptist Church of Boston by Nathan E. Wood, published in the year 1899 by the American Baptist Publication Society. But I'd also refer my listeners to 
a book that is called The Price of Soul Liberty by Henry Clay Fish, which you can still buy online if you do a search for it, for just $4 for the paperback. Henry Dunster, the first president and practically the founder of Harvard College, was one of the most eminent and useful men in the New World. He was regarded as a miracle of scholarship, and his modesty, amiability, and devoutness were not less conspicuous than his scholarship. He had devoted himself with rare assiduity to the establishing of the infant college. He stood preeminent in that notable group of English university-bred men, which had ordained and guided the affairs of the colony during those early years. The admiration for him was almost boundless, while the grace and sweetness of his character made him almost equally well-beloved. He was a rare man who appears all too seldom, in whom lofty scholarship, noble character, profound unselfishness, and sweet humility are happily blended. He had become president of the college in 1640 and had united with the first church in Cambridge. It would be difficult to overestimate the confidence and the pride which the whole colony felt in regard to President Dunster. In 1653, he began to give public expression to his dissent from the scripturalness of infant baptism. The whipping of Obadiah Holmes two years earlier had undoubtedly arrested his attention and aroused him to search the scriptures. After some months of careful study, he plainly declared, All instituted gospel worship has some express word of scripture, but paedobaptism has none. Dunster Manuscripts, page 289. In February of 1654, he held for two days a public disputation with nine leading ministers of the colony upon this thesis. Believers visibly only are to be baptized. All the arguments brought against him were fruitless toward changing his opinions. He instantly declared himself opposed to infant baptism because it had no warrant in Scripture, and he urged a baptism of believers only. He soon gave a practical expression to his views by withholding his own child from baptism. So conspicuous a defection from the Puritan doctrine and so masterly an attack upon a key position of a theocratic state aroused the leaders in church and state as nothing previously had been able to do. Every effort was made to win him back, or at least to persuade him to remain silent. The appeal of personal affection was made to him. The danger to the colony and to the college was set before him. The ruin of his personal fortune and of his future usefulness was threatened. But all was in vain. He was immovable. He contended that the subjects of baptism were visible, penitent believers, and they only by virtue of any rule, example, or any other light in the New Testament. He had put nearly all his private property into the establishment of the college, he had given at one time an hundred acres of land and with almost no outside financial assistance had built the president's house. For nearly fourteen years he had given himself with rare and single devotion to its maintenance. His property was invested in it. His life was wrapped up in its work. His attitude toward infant baptism imperiled everything which he held dear except the truth. 
The grand jury sent a request to the ministers to formulate a suitable charge against him, which they did, and he was presented to the court under indictment for disturbing the ordinance of infant baptism in the Cambridge Church. His reply was, But for the matter I conceive then, and so do still, that I spoke the truth and the fear of God, and dare not deny the same or go from it, until the Lord otherwise teach me, and this I pray the honor court to take for mine answer. In October 1654, he was forced to resign the presidency, for as Cotton Mather says, he had fallen into the briars of anti-pedobaptism, and his usefulness was deemed to be at an end. His defection from the standing order was a shock and grief to all the adherents of Puritanism to such an extent as is impossible for us at this day to understand. He was ordered to vacate his house just as the severities of winter were coming on. But upon his humble petition and statement of the delicate health of his family, he was permitted to remain until the spring. He then left his home, an impoverished man, and scarcely knew which way to turn for employment among those who were now unfriendly to him. He removed at length out of the jurisdiction of the colony of Massachusetts Bay and located in Scituate, which belonged to Plymouth Colony. There he preached to a little flock which he gathered about himself. But even there his enemies pursued him. For on April 7th of 1657, the grand jury presented Henry Dunster to the court at Cambridge for not bringing his child to the holy ordinance of baptism. When he affirmed that none of them had given any demonstrative argument touching infant baptism, the court, instead of giving him a reasonable answer or refutation, solemnly admonished him of his dangerous air and ordered that he should give bonds for his appearance at the next court of assistance in Boston. It is probable that he was never brought to trial. He died in Scituate, February 27, 1659. His death allayed ecclesiastical animosities, and his body was solemnly interred at Cambridge, where he had spent the choice part of his studies and of his life, and might there have continued if he had been endowed with that wisdom which many others have lacked besides himself, to have kept his singular opinion to himself, when there was little occasion for venting thereof, in quote, Hubbard, History of New England. Fortunately for New England and the world, Henry Dunster was no coward and was endowed with a spiritual sagacity which foresees the triumph of the truth and is ready to suffer in its behalf. He was indeed one of the early New England martyrs. These sufferings for truth and conscience sake evidently made a profound impression on the mind of Thomas Gould of Charleston, who was a close friend of the learned president. He also became disturbingly inquisitive on the subject of infant baptism. In 1655, the elders of the Charleston Church put gold under admonition for not bringing his infant child to baptism, and when they sent him a note requesting his appearance before them to answer for his delinquency, Dunster was among the group of friends at his house who advised him what to do. It is evident that they were in close sympathy with each other before this time and that Dunster's attitude and views were the direct cause of Gould's withholding his child from baptism. It may be said, therefore, with a large measure of truth, that Henry Dunster was the founder of the First Baptist Church of Boston. 
for he was the immediate forerunner and influential cause of the attitude of Thomas Gould, who finally became the actual founder of the church in Boston in 1665. There can be no doubt that if Henry Dunster had lived until 1665, he would have become the first pastor of the church instead of Thomas Gould, his friend and disciple, and would have had the joy of seeing his views embodied in a church of baptized believers. This consummation was, for some unknown reason, delayed until six years after he had passed away. Probably the sternly intolerant spirit of the authorities made it seem impolitic that the group of Baptists should organize themselves formally into a church, but it is known that they met privately for simple worship some years before the final organization. It is perhaps idle to speculate upon what different results might have ensued if Dunster had lived to become founder and pastor of this church. He certainly was not without courage to brave persecutions. He might have attracted to himself many men of learning and influence and have given the church such a standing as to have precluded some of the fiery persecutions through which it afterward was called to pass. He found in his disciple Thomas Gould a man as inflexible in character as himself, and one whom the terrors of fines, imprisonments, and the loss of all things had no power to frighten. In the simplicity and greatness of their characters, they had much in common. Henry Dunster's name and memory will ever hold a cherished and fragrant place in the history of the First Baptist Church of Boston. In 1720, the church wrote a letter to the Baptist churches in London and gave some account of the rise of the church. The following is an extract from the letter which has been preserved. Quote, It pleased the Lord by his divine and wise disposed in providence to spirit a small number of men who were very gracious and enlightened in the knowledge of his truth as it is in Jesus and to appear for the vindication thereof, and to encourage them for their gathering into a church in the way and order of the gospel as above mentioned, which several wise and learned men endeavored but could not accomplish it. However, God was pleased to succeed the endeavors of our brethren who were not so accomplished with acquired parts and abilities by learning. End quote. This quote can be found in Isaac Bacchus' History of the Baptist in America, Volume 1, page 490. What Dunster, the wise and learned, was not permitted to do was accomplished by God's grace through Thomas Gould, who declares, We consulting together what to do, sought the Lord to direct us and taking counsel of other friends who dwelt among us, who were able and godly, they gave us counsel to congregate ourselves together. And so we did, being nine of us, to walk in the order of the gospel according to the rule of Christ. Yet knowing that it was a breach of the law of this country, that we had not the approbation of magistrates and ministers, for that we suffered the penalty of that law when we were called before them. Thomas Gould was one of the leading freemen of Charleston and was a man of notable character and standing both in town and church. His business was that of a wagon maker. He was one of the leading property owners of the town. In a list of 212 freemen, among whom in 1658 the public meadowlands on the other side of the Mystic River were divided pro rata by the town according to the assessed property which they owned in the town his name appears twelfth on the list that he was a man who knew how to think in a clear consecutive and orderly way 
his narrative of his experience amply shows. He was undoubtedly the writer of the Confession of Faith, which the Church still accepts as its creedal statement. The honorable and influential position which he held in a community accounts for the long and patient dealing with him by the Charleston Church, and also for the stir which his open espousal of Baptist doctrines caused in the colony. Upon him, for many years, fell the heaviest burden of fines, imprisonments, banishments, and social ostracism. Hubbard in the history of New England says that Gould was a man of a grave and serious spirit and of a sober conversation. He and Hannah, his wife, were admitted to the First Congregational Church of Charleston on the seventh day of the fourth month in 1640. He was admitted a freeman of the colony June 2, 1641. The restrictions about this privilege were so great that to be a free man was an especial distinction. He was admitted again to the Charleston Church on the 21st day, first month, 1652, in which year he was also one of the selectmen of the town. He had evidently changed his residence and returned again, but where he went or how long he remained is unknown. He would seem to have had no scruples about infant baptism in 1641, for in that year he brought his infant daughter to be Christian. But between that date and 1655, it occurred to public whipping of Obadiah Holmes because he was a Baptist, and the agitating public discussion over President Henry Dunster, between whom and himself was a warm friendship. It is not surprising, therefore, that when in 1655 another child was born to him, he refused to have it christened, and in consequence was earnestly admonished by the church. But persisting in his refusal, he was suspended from communion December 30th, 1656. This is soon followed by a course of expostulation, admonition, and discipline, lasting through nearly ten years until July 30th, 1665, when he was excluded from the church upon definite information that he had embodied himself with other Anabaptists in a pretended church way. Even if the debates between himself and the church sometimes grew warm, and threats were made against him which were difficult to bear, Nevertheless, the church in the main showed a commendable patience with him during these ten years. It is abundantly manifest that he was a man of influence and distinction in the community. Otherwise, he would have been more summarily cut off from church fellowship. In 1656, he was summoned before the Middlesex court, quote, for denying infant baptism to his child, and thus putting himself and his descendants in peril of the Lord's displeasure, as in the case of Moses, end quote. But the case of Moses does not seem to have greatly frightened him, nor to have swerved him from his course of descent. For in the following April, 1657, he was again presented by the grand jury and in company with ex-president Henry Dunster, who was presented by the same grand jury, was indicted and brought before the court on the same charge. Thomas Gould, being presented by the grand jury held at Cambridge in April 7, 1657, for not bringing his child to the holy ordinance of baptism, the said Gould, appearing in court, confessed the child to be unbaptized. The court solemnly admonished him of his dangerous error, end quote. Middlesex Court Original Papers 
Also, Thomas Armitage, History of the Baptists in America, page 699. Thomas Gould being again called. Thomas Gould being again called on April 24th and not appearing, the court ordered that the clerk of the court should send an attachment for him to appear before any magistrate in case he refused upon notice given him to give 20 pounds bond for his appearance at an ex-court of assistance at Boston, and that he should pay the costs of court. I shall insert in full the original record of the Charleston Church and also Thomas Gould's own narrative concerning the long course of discipline which now ensued. The facts have been so frequently distorted by writers on colonial history that in the interests of justice, the two records ought to be put side by side. The judicial reader will then be able to decide for himself what is the exact truth in this notable case of discipline. The Charleston Church was founded in 1628, but no records of its history are preserved prior to this record of discipline as here set forth on the sixth day, fourth month, of 1658. This record was not entered in their books until some time after the events recorded. It was then made from the memory of its only elder, Zach Sims, who seems to have shown more heed and zeal in the discipline than wisdom or brotherliness. How far the recollections of a man of such a temper are to be trusted when they are put into the church record a considerable time after Gould was excommunicated and outlawed for being a Baptist, the impartial reader must determine how significant the discipline and final withdrawal of Gould and Osborne appeared to the officers of the church may be inferred from their desire to put it on record as the first important entry of their church book. Their prescience was singularly correct and has been fully justified by history, for it was by far in its various bearings the most important event in their history. It was the beginning of organized and fearless dissent in Massachusetts and marked the opening of that long and weary struggle, the end of which almost two centuries later was complete religious liberty and the severance of church and state. The church tried persuasion, The court tried coercion, but both were alike vain. The church proposed argument and excommunication. The court proposed fines and imprisonment, but no proposal proved persuasive to the indomitable spirit of Thomas Gould. The general spirit of the severe class of Puritans of this period may be better understood in the light of some of their familiar utterances. Quote, Anabaptism is so cruel and hard-hearted opinion. End quote. Quote, Anabaptism is engine framed to cut the throat of the infantry of the church. End quote. Quote, Tis Satan's policy to plead for an indefinite and boundless toleration. End quote. Anabaptism, we shall find, has ever been looked at by the godly leaders of this people as a scab. End quote. Protestant ought not to persecute any, yet the Protestants may punish Protestants, and as the case may be circumstanced, the congregation of such as call themselves Protestants cannot rationally be denied, end quote. Quote, experience tells us that such a rough thing as New England Anabaptist is not to be handled over tenderly, end quote. It was toleration that made the world anti-Christian, end quote. 
The Lord keep us from being bewitched with a whore's cup, lest while we seem to detest and reject her with open face of profession, we do not bring her in by a back door of toleration, end quote. Separation and anabaptism are wanted intruders and semen friends, but secret fatal enemies to reformation, end quote. These were quotes from Thomas Shepard, Increase Mather, Samuel Willard, John Cotton, and Jonathan Mitchell. Such passages from sermons of the time might be multiplied indefinitely. The Baptist schism was the most dreaded of all with which the colony was threatened, and no epithets were too opprobrious to be hurled at its adherents. The ministers were insistently urging the civil magistrates to use coercive measures and to punish heretics. To purge New England of heresy was a favorite appeal, and was the open door through which the civil courts let loose a fierce horde of fines, imprisonments, and banishments. We will close by quoting Thomas Gold's own narration concerning his church discipline. Quote, it haven't been a long time a scruple to me about infant baptism. God was pleased at last to make it clear to me by the rule of the gospel that children were not capable nor fit subjects for such an ordinance. Because Christ gave this commission to his apostles, first to preach, to make them disciples, and then to baptize them, which infants were not capable of, so that I durst not bring forth my child to be a partaker of it. So looking that my child had no right to it, which was in the year 1655, when the Lord was pleased to give me a child, I stayed some space of time and said nothing to see what the church would do with me. On a third day of the week, when there was a meeting at my house to keep a day of thanksgiving to God for his mercy shown to my wife, at that time one coming to the meeting brought a note from the elders of the church to this effect, that they desired me to come down on the morrow to the elder's house, and to send word again what time of that day I would come, and they would stay at home for me, and if I could not come that day, to send them word. I, looking on a writing, with many friends with me, I told them I had promised to go another way on the morrow. Henry Dunster, being present, desired me to send them word that I could not come on the morrow, but that I would come any other time that they would appoint me, and so I sent word back by the same messenger. The fifth day, meeting with Elder Green, I told him how it was. He told me it was well, and that they would appoint another day when he had spoken with the pastor, and then they would send me word. This lay about two months before I heard any more from them. On a first day in the afternoon, one told me I must stop, for the church would speak with me. They called me out, and Master Sims told the church that this brother did withhold his child from baptism and that they had sent to him to come down on such a day to speak with them. And if he could not come on that day to set a day when he would come, and they be at home, for he refusing to come would appoint no time when we wrote to him to take his own time and send us word. I replied that there was no such word in the letter for me to appoint the day, but what time that day I should come. Mr. Sims stood up and told me I lied for they sent to me to appoint the day. I replied again that there was no such thing in the letter. He replied again that they did not set down a time and not a day. Therefore he told me it was a lie, and that they would leave my judgment and deal with me for a lie, and told the church that he and the elder agreed to write, that if I could not come that day to appoint the time when I could come, 
and that he read it after the elder wrote it, and the elder affirmed it was so. But I still replied that there was no such thing in the letter, and thought that I could produce the letter. They bid me let them see the letter, or they would proceed against me for a lie. Brother Thomas Wilder, sitting before me, stood up and told them that it was so in the letter, as I said, for he read it when it came to me. But they answered it was not so, and bid him produce a letter, or they would proceed with me. He said, I think I can produce a letter, and forthwith took it out of his pocket, which I wondered at, and desired him to give it to Mr. Russell to read, and so he did, and he read it very faithfully. And it was just as it was said that I must send them word what time of that day I would come, so that their mouths were stopped, and Mr. Sims put it off and said he was mistaken, for he thought he had read it otherwise. But the elder said, This is nothing. Let us proceed with him for his judgment. Now let any man judge what a fair beginning this was. And if you wait a while, you may see as fair an ending. They called me forth to know why I would not bring my child to baptism. But before I spoke to that, observed the providence of God in the carriage of this letter. Brother Wilder was with us when their letter came to my house. And after Mr. Dunster had read it, he gave it to Brother Wilder, and he put it into his pocket, and it lay there eight or nine weeks, until that day I was called forth, going a good space from his house, finding it too cold to go in the clothes he had on. He returned again and put on another pair of breeches, which were warmer, and when he had so done, put his hand into his pocket to see if he had any paper to write with, and there found that letter and put it in again and went to meeting, yet not knowing what would be done that day concerning me. God had so appointed it to stop their fierce proceedings against me for a lie, which they sought to take me in. Then asking me why I did not bring my child to baptism, my answer was, I did not see any rule of Christ for it. For that ordinance belongs to such as can make profession of their faith, as the scripture plainly holds forth. They answered me, that was meant of grown persons and not of children. But that which was most alleged by them was that children were capable of circumcision in the time of the law, and therefore is capable in the time of the gospel of baptism, and asked me why children were not to be baptized in the time of the gospel as well as children were circumcised in the time of the law. My answer was, God gave a strict command in the law for circumcision of children, but we have no command in the gospel nor example for the baptizing of children. Many other things were spoken. Then a meeting was appointed by the church the next week at Mr. Russell's. Well, stopping the narrative there for lack of time, we'll just conclude by saying for nearly 10 years, meetings of those who held Baptist doctrines had been maintained in private houses in Charleston and Boston. These meetings were strictly forbidden, but nevertheless were regularly held. The law was not strenuously enforced, probably because these assemblies had not yet passed on into an organized church. A meeting held in Thomas Gould's house on Sunday, November 8, 1663, at which were present Gould and his wife, Osborne and his wife and others, seems to have been especially obnoxious to the authorities, both in church and state, and called forth immediate and vigorous action. But even yet extreme severity was not used. Amazing inquisition into their assemblies and accompanying threats were the deterrent means employed. 
It is not known why so long a delay occurred in the final organization of the church in Boston, but in June 1665, such an organization was finally perfected, probably in the house of Thomas Gould, and proceeded to exercise all the functions of an orderly church, and especially to observe the ordinances. It was a time of mingled hope and fear. It required no small faith and courage to expect success in their perilous venture. Thank you for tuning in to this podcast. This is the Narrated Puritan, audio recordings which can be found on Sermon Audio.